0: Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with jazz guitarist Henry Ebb. He opened up about his 2019 CD, Jazz Standards Then, Volume 1 and this new COVID-19 jazz world we live in during late April from his home on the West Coast. This jazz musician, recording artist, composer, band leader, teacher, and so much more has been playing guitar since the age of 13. He comes from an impressive musical bloodline. His father is the first cousin to legendary jazz bassist Charles Mingus, and his early musical influences were Jimi Hendrix and Charles Mingus. He's got great stories, so dig it. Where exactly are you located?
1: I'm located in Sacramento, California.
2: Gotcha. How's everything going?
1: Oh, it's going fine, you know. It's it's about as well as can be expected. Um, you know, I have a nice little recording studio here and I've been you know, uh my my progress has accelerated on preparing volume 2. So that's basically all ready to go and I'm about to start working on volume 3. So <laughs> it's kind of like I have all the, I have this recording studio in my backyard. And, and uh, the dangerous thing is uh, that I keep finding new things to buy if I could afford, you know. So it's like, oh my gosh. So yeah. So my wife was working from home, and we have a nice little garden in the backyard. If I need some some space, and that's what I'm going out right now. How about you?
2: We're holding steady here. I'm actually in a suburb of Kansas City called Lee Summit, and that's where Pat Metheny's, uh Pat from. Oh, yeah. Right yeah so we just moved here in january so we've been going through a flurry of activity we were actually just kind of getting settled in and then everything kind of went boom um Mm -hmm. uh, which who would have ever thought that we were going to look back on march 12th or 13th as this magical time that used to be the way that we saw life as
1: yeah 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 no kidding yeah
2: weird yeah it's very weird but you know no go ahead
1: I had an old friend of, actually a friend of my mother's, who was, uh, who was, uh, you know, I kind of came up as a as an alternative lifestyle hippie kind of guy, but you know, um, this woman uh, had lived for I think five or six years completely off the grid in Georgia, I think, no electricity, didn't buy any food, she grew everything. She and her husband did everything. They had you know, a small farm and stuff, and. And my first reaction was, "Are you nuts?" But then I realized that had anything like that happened to me, I would be dead within a week. But if 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 the uh, zombie apocalypse actually happened or World War III, she'd be able to survive quite fine. She she had you know, and and I have a hard time just not being without my cell phone. Luckily, I don't have that kind of situation, but it certainly makes you think about uh, the simplicities of, of life, you know, um, and uh, sometimes the complexities are, are are too much, you know, <laughs> yeah. down to the essential necessities of things,
2: yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's wild, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, nature always wins, and that's really kind of yeah. the whole thing, and... Sometimes when we go through these things, we go through them as countries or regions and it's like the entire world is going through this and um, we all have to figure out ways. And, you know, we keep thinking, you know, we've been doing this for long enough now where this is normal right now. This is all we know as normal. And when we do go back, it's just going to be different. Everything will be different. And you you just have to adapt. And uh, I guess my, yeah, so anyway, it, it is what it is, and I think what I've been trying to do is reach out to musicians and kind of talk about music. I think it's a good oasis. I think it's a good way of looking at a very unique time that we may never, ever yep. live through again. So I think it's a good functionality, yeah. you know. Um, it, it, so, it's so weird
1: watching telev- old television shows and course someone just shakes someone else's hand. And my reaction is, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's actually somebody. Well,
2: and I think that's the thing that's the most bizarre out of this. In almost a month and a half, everything that we're taught as human beings, which is to socialize, see the world, shake hands, look in eyes, go out and do it yourself, has completely been reversed. Absolutely off the charts. And then to add on top of that, all we're given is ambiguity as to when we can resume things. You know, there's no timeline. So everything that we teach children, to make them effective human beings, <laughs> right? We're completely yeah. not doing that ourselves right now, and it it's very bizarre. It yeah, very, very bizarre. You know,
1: and, so. and, and the complete distrust. I mean, if, if, if I'm told, "Hey, we're opening up the country, you know, next week." hell no. You know, I mean, you know, I know, you know. We yes, we do need to get to get back to work. We do need to open things, but you know, at what cost? And blah 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 blah. So there, there, there's just this schism. That is just more firmly entrenched, and uh, it's 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 a really <laughs> it's a terrible time. <laughs> yeah, but I'm
2: yeah. I'm advantage
1: of, of everything I can.
2: Yeah. Well, and I've been hearing that too from a lot of people. You know, just you know, it's 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 for a lot of people. I think we've run so far and so hard that this is a minute for everybody to just kind of stop and say, okay. Let's talk to ourselves. Let's figure out what's going on. Let's see what we need to do from here. And right. I, I think more than anything else, what you were before this is only going to get magnified in different ways now. So whatever you were before, if you were negative or positive, it's only going to be exasperated during this time period.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You good, know? Point. So good point. So
2: it's, point. Uh, it's the way it is. But at any rate, thank you for taking a minute out for Neon Jazz to talk about the music. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, sure. Absolutely.
2: Uh, So your latest album, Jazz Standard Zen Volume 1, you were just talking about getting another volume out. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to have music out and be a jazz musician during this very uncertain time of COVID-19. Well,
1: um, in my case, uh, I have a recording studio, and I pretty much set this thing up in the past I've always had a studio, but for the pa- in the past two years, I've really put it together and and had a place where my band could rehearse, where I could write music, because there weren't as many gigs as there used to be, and uh, at least for around here, the the venues were kind of getting tighter, and uh, the uh, available musicians were were there, but there just wasn't you know so. For me, I had to find a, a solution. So the solution was to build a studio and have a rehearsal place where my band band could come and I could write music and do this whole thing. And um, in looking for projects, I, I I remembered this jazz album that I had done that hadn't released. And so that kind of gave me some momentum and uh, found it. And I was really excited about it because I had forgotten about it, re- actually. And uh, it kind of set me on a whole brand new course. I mean, the whole thing is creativity. And in this period, um, it's so easy, I think, to become overwhelmed with the, oh, my God of it all. What am I going to do? You get stuck to the television set. You get stuck to Facebook. It's almost like these things are are, are magnets that you get stuck to. And my thing has been, yeah, I'll look at a little bit of it, but I'm just not going to get get stuck. I'm going to pick up my guitar for two or three hours, three or four hours a day, um, continue to practice, continue to write music. And, uh, you know, so that's that's what it's been to me. And for me, right now, since this, uh, putting this album out, it seems like a lot of people have really responded to it which has given me some wow some great i guess fuel during this strange period
2: yeah yeah and that's yeah that's that's a great way of putting it um let's go back to your beginnings um yeah where were you born and raised and kind of how did jazz become your world well, I was born and raised right here. I
1: live in Sacramento, California. Uh I have lived many places, uh but because I'm an only child, I always ended up back here um to to help with my mom. And um but uh I I I my father was first cousin to Charles Mingus, the great bass player and composer. So uh, th- there was always a sense of identity. When I, I uh, my my mother and father loved music, and my father was an audiophile back in 1960, in the very beginning of where when audiophiles became audiophiles, you know,
0: uh, they didn't have, to have
1: stereos. It was a huge Monaro setup that he had, and and he had a, a big like shelf of of albums. And if I stretched out my hand now, I could reach about the amount of albums of Charles Mingus. And uh, so I identified with that, but it took me a long time to actually uh, find my instrument. But there was always a a real love of art in the house, of classical music, of jazz, and uh, from Oscar Peterson to Errol Garner to uh, Louis Armstrong to Mingus to... Um uh so all of these guys were played on the record player, including going to museums, so there always seemed to be a connection to me, so I always felt like I could identify with jazz I mean, jazz uh some of the m- first music I ever heard live some of some of the first music I ever remembered hearing was when my father uh took me to see his cousin Rudy Williams, who was a tenor player. And they were playing Mingus' album, Blues and Roots. And he also had a great uh sound system. And I just remember just being blown over, bowled over by the power of this great big tuby sound, of you know, the trombones and bass and this kind of stuff. And more importantly, my father and Rudy were so excited about listening to it. So, uh, so I think I think that was the moment when when it just captivated me, and I was probably I was four at the time.
2: Well, what was the first jazz show that you saw live that made you think this is what I want to do?
1: Boy, okay, so uh, I think it was the first time I saw Mingus. Um, <clears throat> I was already a fan, and I'd already started playing the guitar. Let me see if so, was that the first. Um I think that was the first jazz show I had seen which is real interesting because my uncle um Clarence he also played tenor and uh he uh I don't mean also I mean Rudy my cousin played tenor and uh so Mingus was was coming around to play at the jazz workshop in San Francisco so I was maybe 13 but I was tall for my age, and uh, my, my uncle uh, was short and, and very stocky. Uh, so he gave me a suit that didn't fit, and it was pretty funny. And I think it was obvious to everyone that I wasn't of age, but they let me come in anyway. And, uh, you, you know, it's, it's interesting seeing some of your jazz heroes at some of those very famous jazz clubs because they're all um uh like uh, <laughs> they they're not the highest um uh greatest jazz clubs i mean the jazz workshop was just a dank dark you know place and uh so uh and i'd had i'd seen records of you know music being played at the jazz workshop and so so it, it all seemed very dark and mysterious and Mingus came and sat with us and and um and I I I I asked him I'm, I'm Mingus is that is that Danny Richmond yes well who's the t- trumpet player I don't know and so it was all very very exciting and I think the the mystery of that and sneaking into a jazz club uh with the smell of of beer everywhere it was just kind of intoxicating to, to a, a 13, 14-year-old boy.
2: Well, and you did spend some time in New York City, and you got some associations with Sonny Rollins and Joni Mitchell. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, not only being in New York, but being around legends and luminaries, what they taught you that resonates with you today.
1: Well, it was remarkable for me because I got to see how my, my heroes lived, which is a real rare thing. I mean, if you're a writer and you love Dostoevsky, the ability, the the dream of actually living with, with that man for three months, so that, that's kind of the way it was. Dexter Gordon lived downstairs, um, and we often had dinner together. Um, Joni Mitchell was working on her album Mingus, so she had come by, and uh, I had the opportunity of talking with her quite a bit. And... Uh, You know, and she was kind of going through uh, um, a loss of confidence, I guess. And uh, it was funny because Mingus didn't really know the first thing about her. He had been put in contact with her uh, from a mutual um, friend who was a um, movie producer, um, Daniele Sanatore, who had had produced... um, this music, this movie that M- Mingus wrote the music for, Totomoto. Um, and uh, so, but, you know, I knew all about Joni Mitchell. Well, basically from his Hissing of the Summer Lawns and, and her other hits and Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, which at that point was the mo- her most recent release. So we talked quite a bit, and she would say, well, you know, Charles, I don't really sing melodies. And I'd say, oh, are you kidding me? Jericho, <laughs> they wanted me to shut up. Because I wasn't in, I wasn't invited into their conversation. But uh, on both sides, I was very familiar with both of their musics, and um, and I, you know, I was a young twenty-one-year-old kid from California, and I wasn't going to keep my mouth shut. So, <laughs> so it was it was it was it was great. I got to sit was uh, several times with Sonny Rollins and just bug the hell out of him. He was. You know, he, he he's a shy person and there were a couple of two parties he was at and, uh, you know, people were giving him wide berth. He was sitting by himself. You know, when you have great famous people, most people kind of leave them alone. They figure they don't want to be bothered. And so I just kind of stood and looked at him and looked at him. He's nervously He's just kind of looking at the people. and So I sat down right next to him and just started talking. We must have talked for thirty minutes or so um, and uh, I, I, uh, and uh, I same thing happened Ornette Coleman came over the house and and i I sat and talked with him for about thirty minutes about music and he gave me a lot of advice you know when he found out I was a guitar player, he told me the guitar and voice were the things that really communicated to the public to the world right now if you if you had the right the right power if you combine voice and, and and guitar, you really have you really have something to to say and and you can do something and and I think what I discovered more than anything was you know they 're just like everyone else there isn 't anything magical about them I, I never found a magical elixir that that these guys were geniuses i I think what what seemed to be most real to me is these guys had a real talent and they worked at it um and and that's what i kind of took away from that uh uh-huh, well i'm right i just have to work my butt off because i don't have that kind of talent so i i have to i have to work harder
2: <laughs> yeah without a doubt so if you have a if you have a dream tonight and you run into your younger self right around the time you were really starting to become a professional and you could give yourself one piece of advice. What would it be?
1: Don't be so shy. In other words, um, hang out more. My solution was to practice, right? My solution was, you know, if I want to be great, I need to, I need to spend, you know, eight hours a day on the guitar, six hours a day. I need to work on this and work on that and work on that. Um, and there was a rehearsal that I went to uh, that Mingus attended. And after the rehearsal... I went straight up uh, to where Mingus, you know, to where I was living with Mingus. And Mingus said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm hanging out with you. And he said, well, you need to hang out with the cats. And I think I said, you are the ultimate cat. <laughs> 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 Why do I want to hang out with those guys? I can... <laughs> but yeah. um, so I, I think the, the thing is that, that, that I didn't understand was that it's all about networking. I I won't say it's less about talent because it certainly isn't less about talent, but it is people will, people, you will play with people who who like you and actually want to hang out with you and, and you're fun to be with. And I've always been a likable person, but, uh, so I would, I would just give myself that advice to, to kind of take Charles Mingus's advice and, uh, Just, you know, there are times when you just can put the guitar down and just go out and hang out with people.
2: Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you like best about being a musician? I
1: like the fact that it is off to the side of what is normally assumed normal in society. Um... I like the fact that that bottom line is is uh, the, that I make I create <clears throat> I just create it's, it's you know so so it's taken me a while I mean I'm I'm so fortunate in that I've been married uh, thirty plus years now and to a beautiful fantastic wife who understands that that's what I do I mean she's never really tried to change me. She's never said, hey, well, you know, don't you think it's time that uh, you pack this stuff up now? It's not making a lot of money for us. And as a matter of fact, it's costing more money. Why don't you, like, go back to school and get your degree and become a a lawyer or something like that? That's never never been the case because uh, she knows I would just be miserable. Um, I get up every day and I, I get on my guitar and I imagine music. Um, and uh, um, that's what I love about it. So what I don't what, what I don't love about it is is that people who don't understand that or don't value that, which seems to be a, a lot in this particular culture, uh, uh, there are a lot of people that don't really understand um, the need for art or the need for the artist. And I just don't hang
2: out with those people. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but but you know what's so strange about that notion is that now that we're all in quarantine, the only thing that's going to save us from the darkness is the arts, whether it's visual, yeah. it's music, you know what I'm saying, or TV or movies. Yeah. Like That's the thing that people are doing. And if there's any question from like a budgetary standpoint in D.C. or somebody that's on the corner, it's foolish. It's 100% yeah. foolish. Because if you took art from their lives and you put the money, their money where their mouth is, there's no way. No one would be able to be sane after this. I mean, we're already, all of us are, are going through some level of trauma right now. But the right. real trauma would be no art. Yeah, yeah. And I, and
1: I think I think most artists and most real art appreciators understand that. And that's why it's such a an, an interesting um, dichotomy because um, music has suffered uh, just an incredible defeat in the last 20 years or so. Uh, with uh, uh, free downloading of music, and uh, and and the making the venues are getting much harder to, so so and and it's I, I'm kind of going, but you you know how much you value this stuff? How come you are you know how come you are raking the the actual artist over the coals? How come you don't actually, you know, spend more time and money to support what you actually love? and uh and so it's always been clear to me um whether you look at the commercial aspect of things like the the advertisers know the number one thing that's that's used to sell a product is music um and uh, whether that's being uh piped into you from muzak at the at the stores or uh, a great ad or this kind of thing. You know, and so it is something that is valued. There just seems to be a dichotomy, or a a, a schism, or or a break in terms of um, willingness to actually support it in a in a meaningful, uh, remunerative way. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. So yeah. we're we're eventually going to get back to the music and the audience will be there and the musicians what do you hope what revelations do you hope both musician and audience member gets from this time away from live music when they come back well i think
1: that the, i'm i'm hoping uh, and i think it will i think you're right i think that the the human connection with actual live musicians will be more valuable i mean it almost seems like once again i'm kind of going on this this other Point of view of this downward slope that had that happened, where where you know, recording music as great as it is, and and I I certainly with my recording studio, I I really love what all the tricks that you can do, but but it, what is happening with recorded music is is getting away from the actual engagement of live musicians playing in the same time stream or the drummer and the bass player and the guitar player and the piano player and the sax player and the singer are all performing at the same time. And there's a magic that happens with that uh, as opposed to, okay, the drummer and the bass player, good, you do your tracks, and now we're going to put on the keyboard, and now we're going to put on, you know, and then you know, two months later, I found a singer that's going to sing. You know, and, and, and you kind of trick the audience into this time frame where you can pr- create something that is perfection, but it's missing something. And I think what it's missing is that immediacy, that emotional impact that you get from seeing a live performance, warts and all. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense whether, whether the, the saxophone player missed that B flat. Yeah, it's like, who cares? It's like the, 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 the power of that performance. And I think that's what's going to happen. People are gonna get so excited about venues opening up um that they're just going to come and and uh and uh, the musicians are going to be prepared to deliver. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be glorious. Um, my final question to you is this. Everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans, but you're living your life. Who do you think you are?
1: Who I think I am. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm a very fortunate person. I'm very, I mean, in a certain sense, um, I I re I, I'm, over, I'm always an optimist. Um, and I, I love my wife. I love my life. I love being a musician. I love creating. Um, and generally speaking, I'm real easy to get along with. Um, and, uh, uh so I who do I think I am? I think I'm a nice guy who uh is um has a lot of integrity when it comes um to playing music and to being an artist. And and I think the the simplicity of my life is I had just decided really early on who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. I remember my mother being very envious of that. Uh, that that there was never any doubt what I wanted to do in my life, and uh, she told me that's a kind of a rare quality. And uh, yeah, I never thought about the consequences. I just played the guitar. <laughs> I
2: right just on. The guitar. <laughs> right on. Perfect, man. Hey, that was a great answer. Hey, thank you very much for taking some time out on this, you know, kind of extraordinary time on the planet to talk about music. Thank you so much, Joe. This is, this is great. i
1: I've really enjoyed this. This was a wonderful diversion from, um, from other things.
2: Well, let me give you one more diversion before I ask a favor. Um, and it's this, the last show that I saw, before this all happened and of course it was before we knew what was going on it was march 3rd at our art museum in kansas city the nelson atkins museum of art phil frizzell came with this trio and yeah yeah and my wife we just got married last july but we've been together for three years and thank you man and and i'm glad it was the last july and not this one so um but you know, I've been taking her to all these jazz shows because I love it and this is what I do, and we go to all kinds of shows. But when she was in this show, I didn't know exactly how to explain what Bill was going to be like, and she was just blown away. But this is the thing that I think is hopeful and very cool about this. Towards the end of the show, Petra stood up and sang, We shall overcome. And the crowd oh just kind God. of. Yeah, kind of cerebrally. Everybody started. I've never been in a crowd that started doing this. Everyone started kind of in different places in the auditorium standing up and swaying and singing it together. March 3rd, man. And yeah. So it was, whatever was going on, whatever electricity the world was storing up was going right into that room. And uh, yeah, you know, and that's again, another pre March 13th tale, you know, and I was talking to a local cat here that was a bass player going to Paris for two weeks and ended up having to scramble back home after a week. And you know, we're all just living our lives doing our thing. But I will never forget that show. And, you know, I think a part of that show made me also go to the very, very last thing that I did, jazz wise. Johnson County Community College here had uh, Dexter's um, widow here. And uh, Maxine was talking about Sophisticated Giant. And I got to ask her a question at the end. That was March 12th. And I remember at that point. I was looking at the juices they were putting out, the cookies. I'm like, yeah, I don't think so. I wasn't really touching anything. You know, Deborah <laughs> Brown was there, and we did the elbow handshake. Like, at that point, we were already getting into, like, the alarm going remember. off. Yeah, so. I remember. But Are, that I, On the 10th. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 you're good. No, no, it's on the 10th. On
1: on the 10th of March, I flew back from um, uh, Florida, and, uh and all the pla- both going i went i went there with the week before and coming back um it was the same thing the middle seat was not booked and i even had an ex- exchange so i had to two change of flights right both going and coming and nobody booked the middle seat and i think you know there, because it was i forget how much we actually were aware of the coming disaster so sort to of. So to speak. So I came back on the tenth, and two days later, I mean, uh, um, he announced the presidential whatever it was uh, the order on the thirteenth. So it's like so quick things change. And sure wow. enough, you know, my wife said, "Come on, we got to go to the store." <laughs> well, why are we going to the store? <laughs> well we got to get supplies. <laughs> So uh, yeah. it's just oh things just fall apart and and it's just amazing to me how fragile things
2: actually are. Totally, you're right, man. You're you're totally right. I just got to tell you, I got a Sonny Rollins story for you. My, um, you know, it, uh, you know, I my son, he's fifteen, and he's been listening to a lot of these interviews, and and uh, it's been kind of cathartic. And he was asking me the other day, you know, what. what's been your favorite interviews or the biggest interviews? Maybe my wife was asking me, and I remember the moment that everything changed for me was when I interviewed Sonny, and I think that was in 2013. And every time I hear a story like what you said, it's exactly spot on. He was so humble. He was so gracious. He was so, I mean, it was just, I almost was like, I, I couldn't believe I was talking to Sonny Rollins. And I remember I was like lost sleep the night before. It was when his Roadshow Volume 1 came out, and it was a long shot his agent sends me teas, and I was like, Hey, how about if I, can I get an interview with Sonny Rollins? And I bet she thought this dude who's been on the air for like two years in Kansas city has lost his damn mind. <laughs> so, but what, what, you know, what's the, what's the worst that's going to happen? No, but it was a, yes. yeah. Exactly. And I threw the dice, Said, wow. yeah, Sonny, you know, at one point I was like, what, what is it like to be famous? And he just laughed and said, what do you mean? You think I'm famous? And I'm like, what are you? Are you dude, are you? Is there in camera here? But it was stuff like that. You know? Oh, like, man. You know, he's like, I'm just waiting to release the greatest album that I can release. And he was talking about this album. And I'm like, saxophone Colossus? Are you kidding me? What do you? What? But that was him. And he's the, he, he, that's the reason why I've enjoyed doing all of these interviews and being involved in the jazz world. He is the Jazz Jedi Council leader of being in that group, no, of being humble. It. He is the yeah. one, dude, and he is grounded, he's humble, he's talented, one of the highest arts on the planet, and he has no pretense, and he's just a human being. And I think what he embodies, he's the last of that generation that's truly passing that torch to the youth, and I hear that in a lot of young cats. They just yeah. wanna do it, and they don't wanna have a big head about it, they just wanna do it because they love it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, And either, that's too hope. sunny man i got to yeah. tell you that what, what, one other thing When
1: right after 911 um i i disconnected from i just didn't want to get stuck like a i don't know what they call it a fly to the light or something like that so i didn't watch a lot of the 911 coverage not online it 911 itself 912 i kind of turned on the television there was a there was a guy who stepped onto a bus and there were people still kind of full of ash and this kind of stuff and he's talking to this one woman and it goes to this other man and in between the two I see this saxophone and the camera just kind of pans up and just briefly goes by and I said, what the hell, that's Sonny Rollins.
2: But <laughs> You know,
1: that's Sonny Rollins you're not talking to? You know, and then finally he just, uh, he said, oh, sir, I see you're a musician. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So what do you what do you play? Well this is a ten this is tennis saxophone. Oh, okay. And and then I'm going, You idiot <laughs> <laughs>
2: How do you <laughs> not know, know that?
1: This man is talk about humble. You know, wow. and he just said, Well, you know you know, they told me I had to evacuate and I had to leave, you know, so a lot of stuff. I got a piano up there and and um so I got the essential stuff, some just clothes and things in my bag here my sacks, and you know, and I'm, I don't know exactly know where I'm going. I'm going, oh my God, that's Sonny Rollins.
2: <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable. He, I mean, he, that would. <laughs> yeah, he, he never
1: said, oh, I'm Sonny Rollins, by the way. You know, he never, the guy didn't ask, someone else on the bus didn't say, do you know that's Sonny Rollins? No, he was just very <laughs> like like everyone else, you know, in the middle of this yeah. tragedy and just trying to trying to find a, find my way, you know.
2: Yeah, that's cool, man. That is the sunny way, and that's kind of when things kind of changed for me. There was a lot of things that kind of, without me, not even in an overt way, kind of opened up because when people would kind of look at. You know what i was doing they were like well wait wait hold on sonny rollins but i will tell you one other cat that really surprised me and he doesn't do interviews anymore is hubert laws it was the first probably one of the very first interviews i ever had and he said something to me that shook my foundation because i'm on the phone with him like really like even beyond Sunny, like why in the world is this guy talking to me right now but wow. he was on the phone and, and, and he was just talking and it was just we were doing our thing and he said joe i'm going to tell you a story real quick he said, I've reached a point in my life. I was at the car wash the other day, and someone saw me and totally flipped out. And I started thinking to myself, I hit a point in my life where I can either hold all of this in, and he wasn't even the naming it what it was. He just said, I can hold all of this in, or I can just give it away. And he just let it pause for a minute. And I just totally got what he was saying. Like, he, he's going to call this guy that's been on the air for less than a year, that, that he clearly can tell loves jazz, and gives me a shot. And then even this guy at the car wash, I think he probably tipped him well or uh, talked to him about his association with Quincy or whatever he said. But those are the moments when these guys that are legends do that. That's the true test. That's like the Rudy moment of getting carried off the field after all those years. You just know they're, they're, that, they're
1: no kidding.
2: they got a heart of gold, man, and they, they don't need yeah. anybody to say that. But, you know, that's the reason why I started doing my show, those guys, because I did not want to read jazz in a history book. I did not want to read it in articles. I wanted to take the clips of what you guys tell me. You are the authors of this art form, and you will tell the story. Not me, not the next guy, not another guy. You are the architects of this enormous monolith, and you will, you will wow. tell the story, and we'll, we'll carry the wow. torch for you. So that's, wow. That's the way it is. And no, I I'm just
1: I, saying that gives me goosebumps. Go ahead.
2: Cool. No, I was just going to say... I did read Mingus's bio and um, really, really enjoyed it and I had no idea how complex and how um, just how many levels of intellect and talent and life. I mean he lived like fifty lives that guy. I mean just, did. <laughs> really good, yeah. Oh my god. Really it's good. Like, you get to the end of that book and you're sweating like you ran a mile. You're like, oh my God, I'm worn out. And I didn't even do that. He did it, you know. So Mingus <laughs> oh, yeah. M- Mingus is another one that when I interview people talk in ways like, you know, that he, was the- he birthed so many musicians in jazz that's unreal. I mean, you hear about people talking about Bird, his impact. But Mingus right. is right up there. Just, you know, just. Yeah. Yeah. yeah his, so. his impact. I think so. He's really I left a mark so. on this planet. So. Yeah. But anyway, man. Thank you again for taking some time out. All right. Well, you stay
0: safe and you be well. Thank you very much. You too, man. Take care. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Sacramento, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Henry for his time, music, and stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store. Visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz all the time, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends.
1: Neon Jazz.